Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 58 for April the 28th, 2011. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm joined this week by Paul Ducklin from Sophos Australia. Welcome back. Thanks, Chester. This time I really am in Sydney. Yes, as well as I'm in Vancouver, and uh, we're getting geared up for round uh, game one of round two of the National Hockey League Stanley Cup playoffs, so... There may be some noise around. We are downtown Vancouver here, and there's a lot of people out there very excited for the game to start soon. And but Chester, um, Chester, of course, both of us live in constitutional monarchies with the titular head being Queen Elizabeth II. So it's our royal wedding today. Unfortunately, the UK got the day off, but we did not. I don't know about you guys. I'm working today. Yeah, no, we don't get anything here either. Uh, we uh, we were happy to have our Good Friday off last week, and and beyond that, uh, it's it's work as usual. So I guess you and I will get to talk more on naked security for the next four days than uh, than Mr. Cluley and uh, Carole with uh, with their nice holiday for the bank holiday on Monday. But I don't think there's any keeping Graham down, Chester. I think we'll hear from him, royal wedding or no. <laughs> So um, on to the news. I mean, there's quite a busy week for news. Most of the topics, unfortunately, have a very similar theme to them. So I'm going to start out with the outlier, which in this case is uh, a story you wrote up on the Core Flood botnet. So the American federal authorities, the FBI, uh, got permission from the courts to try to uh, kind of dismantle it. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what happened and how it's working? Yes, my understanding is this is something of a legalistic first for the USA. The, the idea of seizing servers that are being used for cybercrime, actually going in and confiscating the servers, is no big deal in the U.S. That, that, that's obviously possible by law. But in this case, the federal cops also got permission to redirect traffic from a bunch of U.S.-based command and control servers for this botnet, redirect that traffic to a surrogate server of their own, which not only means they can see what's going on, but it means they can issue their own commands to the bots on infected PCs. And this court order also authorized them to issue a specific command to the bot, not to make a permanent change to the user's computer, but to tell the bot, stop running. And although that doesn't remove the bot permanently, so it's not a permanent fix, it does give a little, it does, it is a little bit more aggressive of a fix than simply beheading the command and control, because it means that those, those infected computers are now not running the bot, the bot is inactive completely. So, uh, although it couldn't reach the U.S. servers, it means it now is no longer looking for other overseas servers as well. And they produced some evidence which suggests that this was quite successful with something like 90% of the infected computers in the U.S. actually going quiet. Of course, their, their court order only applied to the servers that were in the U.S. and infected bots that appeared from their IP number to be in the U.S. But it is, it is sort of a first allowing the cops to intervene on end-users' computers for the greater good of all, apparently. Well, yeah, and I mean, historically, we've, uh, you know, been concerned occasionally around whether it's a good idea for people to make modifications to others' computers, even, you know, maybe even with a court order, uh, because there could be, you know, dangerous results. I guess they must have tested this quite thoroughly then uh, to, before they, they did it to make sure that there wasn't going to, you know, be some kind of a booby trap or anything. Well, there is a there is a very particular risk which was elucidated by the, EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I do agree with this risk and have uh, enumerated it myself before, and that is that if the bad guys realize that this is going on, they could update their bot on infected computers that haven't been reached by the cops yet and rewire, for example, the stop running command to the do some terrible damage to the end users' computers and ho ho ho, the cops will be taking the blame command. 
So there is a risk in asking unknown, untrusted, well, known bad code on somebody else's computer to try and help you. On the other hand, the flip side of this, when you look at the results, uh, and the, the feds have published results which show how much the bot connections to the servers went down overseas, where they weren't allowed to stop the process, and how much they went down in the US, and it seems that their command and control takeover was twice as successful in the US as it was to computers overseas, which of course their court order doesn't allow them to touch. So, in fact, they were so flushed with success, it seems, they've gone back to court, they've applied to have this whole process extended for another month, and this time they have permission to intervene to the point of trying actively to remove the bot permanently from infected computers, which is more intervention, but the theory is that it could actually have a much more permanent effect on this botnet than simply beheading the command and control servers. Well, it's certainly good news, and I mean, we, we often you know talk about botnets and, and the victims of all these crimes all the time, and I mean, about the only massively successful thing that I've seen previously that kind of is in the same kind of idea is the, the monthly Microsoft uh, malicious software removal tool stuff, where for a few very select bots, for people that are bothering to update or maybe have Windows Genuine Advantage, Microsoft was able to wipe out, you know, some large quantities of some very popular uh, bots that infect people's computers. But it's nice to see another approach that looks like it may have some legs. Well, of course, it's not all roses because there is this potential thin end of the wedge that now the cops are getting the right to meddle in your computer and the Fourth Amendment search and seizure in the US, all of that stuff says, well, I'm not being investigated for a crime. I'm not suspected of anything. What are you doing messing around with my computer? Now, it seems that the, in a very punctilious way, the, the FBI and the courts in the US have actually tried to dot their I's and cross their T's on this. And the permanent removal of the bot that the feds are now proposing, they will only do if they get written permission from the user, which seems like uh, it's introducing a whole new bureaucracy which may reduce the success of this effort. So it will be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, I suppose that at least would allow the people that want to be infected to remain infected. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of when Microsoft did a Windows update that uh, caused blue screens of death from the uh, Allurian rootkit or TDSS rootkit back in the day, and a lot of people were complaining that their computers blue screened, but the reality is at least it made them aware of the fact that they were infected with a rootkit and, and they were able to take action to to clean up their machines. So uh, well, moving just along... To, just uh, to, just, it, it's interesting you mentioned that issue because if you read the new court order, that the, uh, and, you know, God bless the U.S. for their First Amendment, that actually recognize that there may be users who elect to run this botnet for reasons best known to them. So there's actually an opt-out provision that <laughs> means that they... That, that they they are going to tell users that you know it's not compulsory to remove the bot. And it, it's interesting, we've, we're doing a poll on naked security right now where you can vote on whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. Should they be allowed to remove the bot without even asking you? Or should they be allowed to do somewhere in the middle like they are now? Or should they be allowed to do absolutely nothing at all? And the votes are very pol polarized, almost no one's voting in the middle. About 45% say, oh, for the greater good of all, just go in and take the bots off people's computers. And about 30% are saying, nope, it's the thin end of the wedge. It's a privacy problem. They shouldn't be allowed to touch my computer in any way, not even to knock something out of memory. So it is a, a somewhat polarizing issue. And I feel slightly sorry for the cops in this one because they're sort of damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they don't take action, everyone goes, oh, you guys aren't doing anything about cybercrime. And if they do, it seems at least in the US, 30% of people perhaps understandably are worried that it may set a 
dangerous precedent for the future. So it's an interesting one to watch. Certainly, certainly. Um, so the other stories this week all have a, a common thread to them, which is, well, n not all completely, but uh, they're, they're not malware related. Let's put it that way. So, uh, you know, looking at uh, just before we started this podcast, there DSL reports announced that they have been compromised in approximately... 8% uh, of their users' email addresses and passwords were stolen by some criminals. Uh, unfortunately, this seems to be a too common a thing, but the passwords were stored in plain text. So oh, dear. They were not salted. They weren't hashed. They weren't encrypted. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, they're forcing everyone to do a password reset, but this kind of leads back to the same problem again of, oh, but my DSL reports password is the same as my Twitter password. There are already people reporting that some people's Gmail accounts have been compromised through this and that their passwords have been changed and they're now struggling to recover their own Gmail accounts. So that's a bit of a mess. And, you know, what's it going to take for uh, website operators? I mean, you think about the number of places we put a username and a password in. I mean, currently in my password vault, I have 700 and some passwords. Uh, what's it going to take you need for to these get out website more. operators? Yeah, well, <laughs> but I mean, what, you know, what, when are website operators going to realize the amount of risk they're putting people at simply because of end users? You know, wh who's at fault, I guess? Is the website operator at fault because the end users have bad practices and choose one password for a bunch of things? Or, you know, is the blame kind of equally divided here? How does it fall? I think, Chester, the important thing to remember in almost all of these cases is whether we like to admit it or not, whether we want to blame whoever it is, and I nearly said Sony there by mistake, whether we want to blame the actual service provider, the people who are suffering this sort of hacker-oriented data loss are victims of serious cybercrime. So we've, we've got to keep that in, that in mind. Having said that, there is a real duty of care, and I don't care whether it's 70 million users lost through a, a Sony mess-up, or two or three users lost because the corner store has actually let information that I trusted with them go. And it really is down to all of us. It's also a little bit down to users. The idea that, ah, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll choose an easy-to-remember password, like password or 123456, as we saw in that, was it Gizmodo hack, where the passwords people were choosing were atrocious, uh, and then using that, that password, whether it's strong or not, on lots of different sites. A chain is only as strong as the weakest link, and if you use the same password on multiple sites, you are asking for trouble. When I wrote about this a little today, when since you mentioned Sony, I think there's been plenty of press around the Sony thing that we don't need to go through a lot of the details specifically. Yeah, as I hear they had happened. a bit. They had a bit of a glitch, didn't they? Something. Yeah, yeah. There's. I think they're still glitching. I've heard that they're going to be glitching through the weekend and potentially uh, Monday or Tuesday. They may restore their service. Uh, whether anybody will have any faith in that service or not is a different question. But so first, um, first aside from <laughs> first the rootkit then trying to sue George Hotz, and now PSN down the toilet. It doesn't well, I think really get any if worse, we want to look, it? If we want to look at the fail, I think we could start with Betamax and just start from there. But anyway, uh, you know, the Sony thing, I think, ties into what you were just saying, though. Like, the, it should, you know, 70 million users certainly is a big deal, or 77 million, I think, is what's being reported. But, you know, this is happening to probably, you know, hundreds of sites a week, right? We, we hear about a few big ones. I mean, DSL Reports is a very big site, and that's why, uh, that's why I heard of it. But we also know that these uh, small-time criminals are targeting the low-hanging fruit 
recruit, right? The, the easy sites that don't have the resources of giant corporations and budgets of giant corporations. And maybe we're surprised when these giant corporations don't live up to our expectations knowing how much revenue they have and how much money they make from us. But it is the same thing. It's happening all over the place. And and I think users are largely blind to it. And maybe if we can raise awareness some, then people will be more cautious because I don't think that they know that the, when the corner store gets hacked, it doesn't make the press. And well, Chester, not, you know, Chester and, it's even worse than that because, of course, in many you, you live in, in some ways from a data protection point of view, a rather privileged corner of the world, and so do people in Europe where there are mandatory disclosure laws. Uh, but in Australia and in most of Asia-Pacific, it's still legally permissible for data breaches to be brushed under the carpet. And if you look back, thinking of another big data spill, uh, the Epsilon breach, where 2,500 different companies who had entrusted Epsilon with email addresses and usernames and items of interest for direct marketing got lost. Now, there was a great raft of US companies which went public and contacted their users and said, we used Epsilon services, they've had a breach, this is what you need to do. The only one that I can recall from this part of the world was Dell Australia. Now, of course, Dell is a US company, so maybe they felt compelled, or maybe they were just being nice and going, yep, it happened to us. But with 2,500 customers, one wonders how many other companies in this part of the world were affected by that breach, and chose simply to ignore the fact and hope that nobody noticed. So users may not just be blind because they're not looking or listening. In some parts of the world, they're actually not being told. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's absolutely, well, that's kind of what I was getting at is, I mean, even, even in the U.S. where there are places where there are laws on it, um, a lot of smaller organizations are getting compromised. They may not even be aware of their obligations, say, if they have customers in Massachusetts that they're suddenly required to disclose it. They go, Or hey, even aware that they've been hacked, and, let's face it. That's another problem, isn't it? If you've got yeah, a small, yeah, a lot of them are unaware. If you've got a small volume website that somebody set up for you, and its primary purpose is to collect leads, tell people where your business is because your business is physical. You know, I'll fix your washing machine. Um, I've got a, I've got a roving lawn mowing business. Then you probably don't review the source code of your website very often, whether you've got it in the cloud on your own server at home or whether someone's looking after it for you in some boutique operation. The website seems to work. It might have some malicious content. And the first time you know might be when one of your customers or potential customers gets blocked by their web filter and bothers to tell you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a related news, I guess, sort of on the malware front. Uh, I guess I lied about not having any other malware stories, but the um, SARS virus. Uh, you know, so I guess the Iranian authorities made a statement earlier this week that they believed there was like a second wave Stuxnet hitting them, and that they're being targeted again. And yet, there seemingly is little samples, evidence, or any reason to even pay attention, from my perspective. Uh, you know, is this Stuxnet part two? Can can we finally put this? story to bed the stars virus has such a cool name if i never hear about stuxnet again as long as i live i'll probably be fairly happy i'm not denying that the possibilities of cyber terrorism online cyber war information warfare country actors all of that stuff that you hear from from uh, government level people I, I appreciate that we need to be concerned about that but I will repeat, and I, you agree with this, I know, because we've discussed it at length on our, on our, in our travels 
is that I think that all this focus on individual items of malware on the basis that it's cyber war or cyber terrorism really distracts from what I call the death of a million cuts, which is that ordinary people every single day are losing out to reasonably well-organized cyber crooks all over the world to the tune of hundreds or thousands of millions of dollars a year. And I think to go, right, we must drop everything and worry about what's happening between the US and Iran with some malware that may or may not exist is really being rather disrespectful to the thousands or tens of thousands of people in our own hometowns who may have lost 150 bucks each to cyber crooks. To them, that 150 bucks times by 10,000, 100,000, a million people is in many ways a much more serious threat to our economy and our safety than yet another Stuxnet, a virus so specialized no one really knows what it does. And to wrap up this podcast, the uh, I, I can't do a podcast or a story without talking a little bit about Facebook, but they, they were in the news again today for shutting down some legitimate websites or pages on their website, I guess, as it is. Uh, Ars Technica, which is a very large uh, tech magazine on the internet uh, oh, but just there's a good reason down. for that i mean they probably they have the word arse on the site so that could be rude <laughs> in the same way that if you have the word fraud on your site then you, wow that's terrible and for the greater good of all you better be shut down i'm being facetious yeah, it, but it does look as though there may be an element of that in what facebook are doing as we discussed on last week's podcast well yeah i mean we've had minor versions of this stuff happen to us and in fact one of the articles you wrote for naked security was was not able to be shared on facebook because you included a warning with a url that uh you wanted people to know that they shouldn't be repeating no and Chester, sharing i didn't include a and... url i simply mentioned the site as a textual name so you would have had to cut and paste it and convert it to a, to a url in your browser for it actually to pose a threat and I felt it's right, important. right. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a link. No, so it wasn't a URL. It was just the name of the site. Yeah. No, well, next time maybe you should include it in an image, in the, or maybe you could put it in in some kind of steganographic fashion. But um, anyway, it seems to be a continuing problem at Facebook. And, you know, fortunately, we haven't had this occur to us, uh, happen to us yet, but it's been happening more and more frequently. So uh, I think there's time to review some of the algorithms over there because their algorithm for blocking clickjacking doesn't seem to work. And their algorithm, algorithm for detecting scams seems to only be shutting down legitimate sites. So... Uh, there's certainly some problems, and it's affecting a lot of people. So uh, on that note, I'm going to wrap up episode 58 of the Software Security Chat Chat. As always, for the latest news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com and on iTunes. And until next time, stay, stay secure. secure.